1: The Total Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. We're diving deep into the virtual mailbag today to find out which club teams will have the best World Cup outings. We explore a world without managers and we consider the soccer moments that live rent free in our heads. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who regrets telling Todd Bowley about his plan to suggest a <laughs> Premier League All-Star game. Taylor Rockwell, what did you do? Uh-
2: I, I mean, I feel like I might have broken some things and I feel bad about it uh, because now Gary Neville's mad, Jurgen Klopp is mad. I feel like I've uh, set Todd Bowley off in the wrong direction. Yeah, you've got a lot of cleaning up to do, bud. <laughs> hey, he's the one who said it out loud. We had just been having it in our Illuminati secret meetings, but I guess he wanted to bring it to the
1: public. <laughs> he did indeed. Perhaps we can chat about that one later. But joining us, Taylor, a man who publicly stated on his social medias that Tuesday's episode of Total Soccer Show, available on the feed, is easily his favorite ever episode of TSS. Joe Lowry, be honest, is it
3: because I wasn't there? No, it's not. Although someone did say that, which I think they were joking, but still kind of mean to you. Mean. So, yeah, it was Graham. It was Graham Graham's Burnett. burner account. It yeah. was great, Ryan. It would have been great if you were there too. I just like debating stuff, and I guess I don't know. I guess Graham and I are enemies for life now. Is that what is that what's <laughs> happening? I think so. I mean, that was that was already the case. This this just yeah, underlined that fact. Very true. Also, the Premier League All Star Game is a good idea. Fight me.
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, well, Graham Ruddham, we just heard you uh, come in there. Um, <laughs> the, the debate is about where to draw the line if it were a North yeah. versus South game as well, right? Because as we all know, the North of England starts just above London.
4: Yeah, Watford, I think, is where you think the North, the yeah. north starts. I also saw Jonathan Lewis saying it should be East versus West just to <laughs> see how confused people get because I believe Bristol is more, is, is, is more East than Edinburgh, which is which, bends my mind a little bit. But because the UK is kind of slanted slightly, uh, I feel like the east versus ooh. west would uh, would would throw up some controversy. Graham, Can Bristol's
1: we... in the southwest.
4: Yeah, so well, apparently not. <laughs> Can we it's do east. it? Can we do it
2: based on where Americans think? British cities are cuz I feel like that would be really fun to see who who they put where cuz I'm never entirely sure which places are located where and I'm guessing other Americans wouldn't be yeah. either. I think if we're going to go full America and make it an all-star game, we may as well bake it based on American values, one of which is not knowing geography.
4: Wales is in London, right? That's where that is. <laughs> one, of, one of my favourite things about... Uh, is, that why Rob Ma-
2: is that why they bought it for Walking to And yeah. they're like, oh, hey, we'll yeah, be in got, London anyway. Wait, what They now? got a
4: bit confused, yeah, Rob <laughs> McElhinney and, and Ryan Reynolds. One of my favourite things about uh, going to a gig, it tends to be Amer- American acts, I have to say. Going to a gig, and it's in Glasgow or Edinburgh, or somewhere up in Scotland, and they open up the gig. This is I swear this has happened at oh, least no. twice to me, and they go, hello, London. <laughs> <laughs> nope, not in London. It's uh, quite a distance from that place. This is Scotland.
1: Was this Spinal Tap you were seeing? Graham? Yeah, right.
4: <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually can't remember. Maybe it was like the Killers or something. I, I can't even remember who it was, but I've definitely heard that in person. And cringed. Wonderful
1: stuff. Because everyone aspires to be London, Graham. That's the real <laughs> reasoning there. And uh, the the UK is a wonderful place uh, to our American listeners. Um, to, if you'd love to come and visit, but just you know, go to London and then then you've you've seen it. You don't need to go any further north. That's my advice, right, Graham.
4: Yeah, I mean, Scotland doesn't have a reputation for being beautiful for its scenery or being a tourist attraction or having lovely castles or anything like that, right?
1: Nailed it, correct. Okay, let's get to listener questions, (laughs) shall we, guys? Plenty to get on with in this show. Damien Smith has been in touch. The official Panini sticker album of the 2022 World Cup has been released and the squads are settled. Hmm. According to Panini, the USA's number nine will be Pepe and Ferreira. The rest of the squad, according to Panini, is Turner, Stefan, Dest, Long, Richards, Robinson, Yedlin, Zimmerman, Aronson, here we go, Acosta, Adams, McKenney, Musa Pulisic, Reina, Weyer, and one other to be named later. Do you disagree with any of their selections, asked Damien. I'll start off, um, Graham, I'm not familiar with Panini sticker albums, or I haven't been in the last couple of decades, I'll say. When it says one to be named later, is it like a sticker in the pack, which is a question mark or something?
4: Yeah, I I that confused me as well, because <laughs> my... Uh, my memory of Panini sticker albums are that you add the sticker and like the player name is already within the album, and you add the kind of picture element of it. So surely they they've had to print all the player names. I was confused by that by that part as well. It's a while since I've had a Panini sticker sticker album. Actually, I think the two thousand I had one for the two thousand fourteen World Cup, but I didn't have one for the last World Cup. So it's been a it's been a a, a hot minute.
1: Yeah, I completed the 95-96 Premier League album. That's one of the greatest achievements of my life. I still haven't topped it, to be honest. Um, But the general question here, Graeme, is about whether that list, which I read out rather too fast, was the correct list, that Panini have nailed it, have they?
4: So I disagree that Ricardo Pepe is going to be in the squad, particularly if he's one of the the, the 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 players competing to start at number nine. I think he has fallen down the pecking order a bit. and But I do have some sympathy because I know the books and the stickers will have been printed a while ago. And going back only a few months, it did seem like Pepe would be in that squad. Things have changed for him pretty quickly over the course. Of the year. But the other thing is, by my count, that's only 19 players. Yeah. <laughs> so the US have seven more players that they can pick. So there's going to be a third choice goalkeeper, at least one more centre back, maybe CCV, another midfielder. So Luca Della Torre isn't in there. So he's a, he's a good bet for the squad, barring any injury. And another centre forward. Neither P. Falk or Sargent's in that list. Again, I have some sympathy with Sargent because he was not in the picture a few months ago. But again, it's uh, as I say, it's, it's a fluid situation, and it's difficult to predict squads so far out from the tournament. I would, I'd personally be absolutely gutted if I made a World Cup roster and I wasn't included in the Panini sticker album. That would that would ruin my whole career. What's even the the point of playing at a World Cup if you're not going to be a panini <laughs> sticker, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Um, Taylor, your thoughts on this one? And once again, whenever we mention uh, Ricardo Pepe, I just think of Pepe from the Simpsons episode where they uh, they abuse the Bigger Brothers program. And Homer gets one and Bart gets one too. And it's cool. One of them is Pepe. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say.
2: (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad that that brings about happy memories for you. you. Uh, I agree with Graham that I was confused about the squad size being 19. That was new to me. I'm also... Uh, I remember the episode of Parks and Rec when uh, Amy Poehler's character, uh, Leslie Nope, is sort of overwhelmed by everything, and she goes to have her political signs made because uh, she's running for office, and she sends them a link to <laughs> yeah. her picture, and they print the link the instead link. of the picture, and that's what's on her signs, and I like to think that they asked Greg Burhalter, and he was like, <laughs> uh, I'll get back to you later. I'll, I'll name one more later, and that was what the official Panini sticker was. That's how they got that one. Um, I agree with Graham. I think Ricardo Pepe is probably the only one that I, w- I would say, barring injury, will not be included I did wonder for a moment which Robinson that was if they had sort of uh, been premature in including Miles Robinson who obviously will not be there due to injury Uh, but it seems like that will be Anthony who hopefully will be there so yeah I think Ricardo Pepe is probably the only one on that list that I think might not end up making it Uh, we're getting a squad here very shortly and if he's included in that September roster then I'll feel better about him being involved if he's not then maybe Mm -hmm. they can scratch that one off
4: I, I read that to fill a full Panini sticker album for this World Cup is going to cost eight hundred pounds, which is about a thousand dollars, which you could probably buy just a player, like one of which. Which player do you want from the U.S. squad for for that <laughs> amount of money? Like, like uh, I don't know, Chris Richards. I don't know. It, it seems like a lot of money to fill a paper oh, book.
2: <laughs> Aaron Long, maybe. I feel like Aaron Long is is probably the one who's going to demand the lowest
1: transfer value. Hey,
3: he's me. a free agent after this year, so you there never we know. Go. Yeah we know. That's a good offer for the Red Bull squad. Right?
1: (laughs) Joe, your thoughts on this one.
3: Yeah, I mean I think everything has been said that needs to be said. Not enough players in this group, which to be fair I don't think is really what Damien's asking in terms of the players there. Stefan, I think, has a real chance of not making it as well. Everybody's mentioned Pepe, but Stefan's been injured. He lost. It seems like his starting job with Middlesbrough. You know, not least because of his injury, but then also because He's not been very good at being a goalkeeper recently, and I think that even extends a little longer into the past. So those are two names that I, I really wouldn't be surprised at all if they're not in this squad. Stefan, more so, just because he has been a Brawlther favorite for so long. But the rest, yeah, they're they're almost certainly going to be there. Hey Joe,
2: I have a question for you. Then let's say Panini call you and they say we need your like biggest outsider shot to make that squad we're finishing up it's not going to be 19 it is going to be 26 Joe Lowry who do you think is the one that maybe wouldn't be on the radar right now but will end up making it into that squad that we should include in our final panini spot
3: well I mean I think everybody who could go is on the radar it just depends on whose radar and how deep sure. you are into this whole Jack Harrison. thing Jack <laughs> Harrison he gets naturalized as an American citizen and goes to work <laughs> um Georgie I think might be my answer to that question mm-hmm. I don't don't know how far outside he is I think we'll know a lot I mean this is maybe not the best discussion for right at this moment because people already know who's in this September squad and I think that's going to go a long way to who's going to be in the November squad but if George Mihailovich is in the September group I would be pretty surprised if he's not in November two barring some sort of really poor showing in one of these next two games
1: are any of you guys going to get the sticker album by the way
3: Anybody? Uh, unless Taylor's tossing out an 800 pound bonus I think probably not
4: <laughs> Taylor's going to pay us for the next month and go you can have this money or you can have this full panini sticker album it's up to you
2: yeah. Uh, full bootleg panini sticker album that i made myself that why do i feel like I'll graham would
3: choose the sticker album somehow oh yeah I don't know. That's, that's worth more
2: <laughs> just gonna keep graham and i have the deal worked out that i pay him in kits
1: that's how this works
2: right that uh, actually his wife makes hates sense. this deal but uh graham's totally into it graham would yeah, be laughing
1: when we switch to a kit-based economy in a few years when you know fiat money goes down the drain
4: <laughs> yeah yeah i'll be yeah.
1: laughing then well indeed um well yeah thank you very much Damien, for that question uh, i'd I am interested in how uh, prolific Panini sticker albums are among adults these days. I remember there was certainly a trend for them a few World Cups back. Uh, none of them in Italy, though. I haven't seen any uh, World Cup sticker albums here on the streets for some... I mean, are they not made in Italy? Well, pa- panini, panini means sandwiches. They've got a lot of those on the streets, if that helps. <laughs> but um, they don't yeah, have Panini's
4: the, uh... headquarters are in Modena, Italy. So they probably are. I mean, every single one in the world is actually in Italy at some point in
1: their lifespan. <laughs> They're just not at Hard Rock Cafe and Starbucks, right? Uh, you right. Diversify That's your search a little yeah, bit. Yeah, they've not crossed my path. That makes much more sense. Thank you very much. All right, David, thank you for the question. Let's move on to Krusty Jugglers. Krusty Jugglers. <laughs> beef. Feel free to use your government names, guys, when you write in, but this is from um, Hey, you which, don't know. You don't know. <laughs> okay. Which club's players will collectively score the most oh. World Cup goals in oh. Qatar, e.g. Man City players, Bayern Munich players, Barcelona players, etc., and so on? Joe, I had a good think about this one. Yeah. And I looked at the likely um, golden boot winners. Yeah. What do you think about Paris Saint-Germain having yep. both Neymar and Kylian Mbappé on their books in terms of the, you know, they could both get five or six goals.
3: And and Messi, who could conceivably get five or six oh, goals Messi as well. As well. That so uh, that even for just those three players, I think there are other teams that have more potential high scorers in terms of volume. But in terms of quality, I think PSG is very much at the top of this list. Messi could score. Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe, Ryan, to your point, are all Golden Boot contenders. They are all very much at the top of that list. So PSG are are certainly one for me. Barcelona is another one. Uh, Krusty mentions it in in their question. <laughs> Robert Lewandowski, I think, could could score four or five for Poland. Although I don't think they're really good enough to make a deep run, so that does hurt they a little bit. Are. And then yeah, it doesn't seem that way. And then you have Memphis Depay, who I think is is sort of not that important to Barcelona this year, but he is important to the Netherlands, who so I think are a good team and have the potential to, to make a little bit of a run, if not to win this whole thing. And then Dembele for France and Rafinha for Brazil, two players that have other higher profile attackers in their squads, yes, with, with Vinicius Jr. And, and certainly Neymar for Brazil, along with Rafinha, and then for, for Dembele and France, you have Karim Benzema and you have Mbappe as well. But still, I think those players could each score three goals that could happen and I wouldn't bat an eye at it because of how good they are so Barcelona and then and then maybe one more Bayern Munich I think have a real Mm -hmm. shot at this there's a couple other teams that that do as well but I want to leave those for someone else Bayern Munich with Sadio Mane who I think uh, c- could score a number of goals of Senegal. And then they have the German attacking contingent. Thomas Muller has been involved. You have Leroy Sané. I mean, there's, there's a number of different players there that could do some damage. And then the wild card here is Alfonso Davies for me. He yeah. plays a little deeper for, for Bayern Munich than he does for Canada. But, man, when you watch Alfonso Davies play – I mean, and this was the case in the Champions League yesterday, even though I don't think Bayern had their best performance – He's he's just different. He has something incredibly special. And that I guess that's something is literally being the the soccer player version of the roadrunner. He is very dangerous in the attack. And we see that more with Canada, I think, than we do with Bayern Munich. So Davies could could give Bayern Munich a little bit of an edge here as their wild card.
1: All right. You might have sold me on Bayern there, Joe. Taylor, any movement on that? Uh, yeah, a
2: couple a couple there. Uh, sticking with Bayern, because Joe, Joe hit a few of them. But yeah, there's Sadio Mane, there's Leroy Sané, there's Gnabry, Musiala, Kimmich, yep. Alfonso Davies, Delict can get in there and get uh, some set-piece goals. I basically looked at any players that had scored, I think, two or more goals for their club in the last couple years, uh, or for their national team, excuse me. Kingsley Coman has done that, so too has Benjamin Pavard, Goretzka, Muller, Chupo Motang for Cameroon, Masrawi, Gravenberg. There's so many players that could score for Bayern that I think some of the... Some may score multiple, some might just score the one, but because there are so many quality players there with Bayern, I think they are contenders Uh, for everything Joe said about PSG. Plus, Renato Sanchez, Carlos Soler, Pablo Sarabia, Marquinhos, and Hakimi have all scored plenty of goals for their national teams. Atraf Hakimi especially could get a couple in the World Cup. Real Madrid would be the third team, I think, that probably belong on this list, uh, because their whole squad is pretty capable of scoring goals, but uh, like Aiden Hazard, even if he's not that important for Real Madrid right now, he still will be, we would assume, for Belgium. Luka Modric, Chuomeni has started uh, making appearances and getting a goal or two. Benzema, as long as he's fit, but we would assume he will be, certainly can be important in goal scoring. Uh, Rudiger, Asensio, Vinny Jr., Rodrigo, Fede Valverde, and Camavinga, all capable of goal sco- uh, scoring goals as well. So I think those three were sort of my leading contenders. I did basically go go through every single team that's qualified for the World Cup and looked at like the common clubs and then started adding them up obviously fewer Italian clubs I think because Italy won't be there Juve double hit there because Italy not there Colombia not there so all the Italians are out Quadrado is out Juve still have a pretty strong squad uh, but I think the the three that have already been mentioned are probably the strongest and most likely uh, to maybe
1: top the golden boots Interesting. Uh, Graham, Tottenham are going to have the Golden Boot winner. So are they in for the shout here as well? So
4: you've stolen my thunder there because my list was PSG, Real Madrid, Bayern, and then my dark horse was Tottenham mm. because they've got two players who if things go well for them could be in contention for the Golden Boot obviously one of them being Harry Kane the other one being Son Heung-min for, for South Korea who's going to be a, a important source of goals for them at this tournament then you've got Richarlison for Brazil I know there's competition for places in the attacking positions with Brazil but I think he's a good bet to get into that squad so he can chip in with one or two he's a physical threat from set pieces and then I believe uh, Heuberg takes penalties for Denmark as well he scored a penalty at the, the last Euros for Denmark and then a player who just always seems to turn it on at major tournaments is yep. even Perisic. Yep. So <laughs> oh, yeah. he, Tottenham are my my sleeper in, in, in this instance. I think they've got a few players, maybe not as many as like Bayern or Real Madrid, but they've got some players there who can count on scoring some goals at this tournament. Yeah, but yeah, Graham, yeah, ben- England
3: ben- are ben- going to ben- drop ben- out Fortnite so early. Too. Harry Kane's only going to score like one or two. <laughs> That's going to hurt them a lot, right? Uh, we
4: can hope that that is the case. And I'm will. i I'm hope, hopefully wrong on that. Yes, that's what's going to happen, Joe. You're absolutely right, of course. That's what I thought, yeah.
1: And on, on that note, Joe, sincerely, after watching Michael Sheen's um, Wales speech, which you might have seen uh, on social media, the uh, rousing speech he gives in support of the Welsh national team, I think they're going to top the group. <laughs>
3: yeah, <it's>, the, answer <laughs> to this, the answer to this question is actually just LAFC, because Gareth Bell's going to score a dozen goals in the group stage and then a dozen more in the knockout rounds after that, I think.
1: There you go. You've nailed it. Thank you very much, Joseph. Thank you, Krusty Jugglers, for that question. We'll be back after this break
0: with more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more looking for an assist
2: with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard it right you can talk to a real human in customer service any time sounds like a real game changer if you ask me Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See
1: terms at discover.com/slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listen to Questions. Caden Butler has gotten in touch. If you could pick any dual national from the past or present or the future hmm, that didn't choose your own respective country, who would it be and why? Uh, Taylor, I'll let mm-hmm. you kick things off.
2: This is a weird one. I'm really excited to hear Joe's answer because I think a couple months ago there was a very obvious answer in my mind. It was Jonathan David and that's still what I will say but I am slightly more optimistic about the number nine uh, spot for the U.S. and the number of players who could theoretically be involved in there because at least a, several of them are scoring goals now. So I feel less desperate to get somebody in who can actually score goals. I think my answer is still Jonathan David. Uh, but my honorable mentions would be there was a moment in time when we could have had uh, Nevin Supatic and Brita Hungeland starting for the U.S. in the 2010 World Cup. They would have had to get Brita Hungeland well before he committed to Norway, but he was, in fact, born of the United States. Uh, Nevan Subotic and his family, I believe, uh, fled uh, the war in Yugoslavia uh, and came here. And so you could have had both of them eventually playing for the U.S. Uh, Subotic was left out of the U.S. U-20s and chose to play for Serbia instead. Uh, Brita Hangeland always played for Norway, but could have played for the U.S. So those two could have made the difference at the 2010 World Cup. But since we cannot go back in time, I would just say Jonathan David is my answer. All right, Joe. Is your answer any different to that?
3: It's not, but I, I want to toss out Trent Alexander-Arnold as well, who I mm-hmm. believe it came out a while back, had some sort of American American connection in his family that might have allowed him to play for the U.S. men's national team if he hadn't already been embedded in with England. So Trent Alexander-Arnold would probably be my answer, but, but Jonathan David is a little bit more of a, a realistic answer because I think he had a much clearer path to the national team. So either one of those I think would certainly help the U.S. a lot. I think Trent Alexander-Arnold we would have seen play in midfield a decent amount for the U.S. in the past. But Jonathan David is a great shout, Taylor. I went into this question thinking it was going to be a Mexican-American dual national yeah. that I was going to think about first, and it it wasn't. I guess if you'd asked me four years ago who I would have picked, yep. it would have been Jonathan Gonzalez mm-hmm. because he was going to be this big prospect. He was playing for Monterey in Liga Mekis in a time where the U.S. desperately needed talent and just didn't have much of any excitement surrounding the program because they missed the World Cup. They were dealing with the heart of the lost generation, and, and we were wondering where the players were. Jonathan Gonzalez was playing at a very good level and playing pretty well. Things have not gone well for him since then. So it's not Jonathan Gonzalez. It's it's probably not David Ochoa, given some of just the this constant chaos that seems to follow him wherever he goes. Although I will say... I still think he's a very good goalkeeper prospect, and I think he could still become a very good player. And the U.S. might rue not getting him involved in their program, even though they, they very yeah. clearly tried to do that. And then Julian Araujo is another one I thought of. I think he's he's a highly talented player. Barcelona apparently really were interested in him during the transfer window, which shocked me. But I mean, he does have some connections to Barcelona through the Barça Residency Academy, where he was in Arizona for a while. It, it it wasn't totally out of left field, but it was it was pretty far towards the left side of the, the outfield there. But either way, I think, Taylor, you're absolutely right. A proven goal scorer, someone that I think would have made this U.S. team much more dangerous over the last few years and would continue to do so down the road. David is a pretty strong contender. And then and then maybe Trent Alexander-Arnold at the council rules that I'm allowed to claim him.
1: All right, Graham, um, there's a, probably a lot of dual nationals in the Scottish team or uh, Scots who chose other tides because of the nature of the British Isles. What
4: are your mm. thoughts here? Yeah, so it was on the cards for about a one week. That was all it, all it was, all the way back in 2002. But Wayne Rooney, he's got a Scottish link through his grandparents. And before he'd even made his Everton debut, Bertie Vogts, who was a Scotland manager at the time, went down to Liverpool to speak to him and ask him if he wanted to represent Scotland. I don't think those discussions lasted very long. And he said no, and Rooney obviously went on to become England's all-time top scorer. Who was his, Getting who was his relative, Rooney, Graham? Uh, a grandparent. Right. I don't know their name. I wasn't on 1st uh, was in terms with them. Was it Shrek? Oh, very good, very Shrek good. Is yes. I, okay. Shrek that is Canadian. Okay, that was a me True, true, true. Carry on. Um, so, yeah, obviously that would have completely transformed Scotland's fortunes at what was a really difficult time in the history of our national team. For starters, we would have qualified for Euro 2008. We were in a group with France and Italy and missed out by one point, and Rooney would have got us that point. So having a goal scorer like that who you could just ask to do pretty much everything, would have been transformational. And then some other players who could have played for Scotland going back through the years, so Paul Scholes, John Barnes, um, Stuart Holden, Tim Cahill, Andy Carroll, Matt LaTissier. Our our national team history could have been very different if we'd got a a couple of those players to play for us. But obviously, a lot of these names are unrealistic in that they were never actually going to play for Scotland. The one that was realistic and that will always sting for me is Aidan McGeady. He was born in Scotland. Grew up in Scotland, played for Scottish club in Celtic, but he was passed over at youth level and the Republic of Ireland picked him and he's he stuck with them into senior level. And for a long time, he would have been our best player. I know Ada McGeady now, he's currently injured at Hibs and isn't really doing much and hasn't been doing much for a number of years, but... Uh, don't forget, he was in he was in the Premier League. He was a good player at Premier League level for a long time for, for Everton. And he would have been our best player. And he's, a, and he's a bit of a throwback to Scottish wingers of old as well. He, he feels like quite a Scottish player. So
1: that was a really painful one at the time.
4: So if I'm going with a realistic pick, it would be Aidan
1: Well, Graham, you've opened my eyes. I didn't realise Matt Letizia could have been uh, eligible for Scotland as well. Actually, we're not even sure if Matt Letizia existed at this point. He might be made up, but um, that's interesting.
4: I think he was born on another planet, actually.
1: Yeah, he's, he certainly lives on one now. Uh, he was born in Guernsey, which is closer to France than it is the UK. Uh, for the England team, I will say the obvious choice is probably Erling Haaland, who was born in Leeds, and I imagine would probably play for England now if he was <laughs> <laughs> if he went through that system and represented the Three Lions. I think that's a fair shout. Um, uh, the other ones I have picked out, Graham, were Welsh players. Two that stand out in my mind who could have played for England, uh, Ryan Giggs, who actually did play for England schoolboys and uh, under 16, and Gareth Bale, whose grandmother is English, but I'm pretty sure it would have taken some persuading to make Gareth Bale play for England over not Wales.
3: Th- you, not that much, right? You guys have golf, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true, but lo- so does California and, ev- you know.
3: Yeah, but Gareth
4: Bale wasn't going to play for the US, that's for sure. <laughs> Scotland has loads of golf, he could play for us. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, playing golf isn't a prerequisite for representing the nation, I suppose. But uh, I, I could, I couldn't really imagine Gareth Bale playing for anyone except for Wales. But Ryan that, Giggs, maybe he could have in another. Yeah, time
4: that's round. that's the thing about you mentioned it at the top there, Ryan, about the british isles in the uk as if you go through most people's family they will have a scottish granny or a or an english granny or whatever i mean i could have, technically i could have played for england my my uh if i you know if i was good at soccer i could have played for england um <laughs> but my 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 grand was born in england so yeah just the nature of of our country kind of makes it that way
1: i'm glad you qualified i, I could have played for england with if I was good enough there, Graham. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, I'm always a
2: big fan of, um, there's a statue in Ashton-under-Lyne, which Wikipedia tells me is a market town uh, in Greater Manchester. Uh, But they have a statue of the three... Uh, men from that area who have won the World Cup. It's Jeff Hurst, it's Jimmy Armfield, and it's Simone Perotta, who was born in uh, in England but then played for Italy. Uh, and so he he's the other one that I always think of when it comes to dual nationals who could have played uh, for England, but did not, but does have a statue there all the same.
1: Very interesting. I'll have to make a visit to Ashton Underline at some point. tete very good. You'll be the one. Yeah, Caden Butler, thank you for that question. Dora Explorer. Uh-oh. Dora the Explorer? Doesn't Last say. Last week, we
4: had Bob the Builder. This week, Dora Explorer. <laughs> Can't wait for Winnie the Pooh next week, baby. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we'll do a special where we have every member of the Paw Patrol is a question at some <laughs> point, I imagine. And
4: I know them by name because I've got a three-year-old. Oh,
2: me too. Me if too. we keep it... If we keep it going, though, because it ha- it wasn't Bob the Builder, it was Bob Builder, and it's not... Isn't it Dora the Explorer? And yeah, now they've made it right. Dora the Explorer. So I feel like next week we'll get, like, Winnie Pew or something like that. It will be one letter off. It will be
1: slightly different, but still all the same, uh, a cartoon character. And you just watched them roll in now, Tata You just watch. <laughs> uh, Dora Explorer says, What if all managers went on strike and FIFA decided the players would coach themselves? Lord of the Fly style. What teams would be good? How often would players themselves on with the rest of the team agreeing. Uh, and also, before we get into that, Dora has asked a bonus linguistic question for each of us to pronounce the term bottle of water. Taylor. Bottle of water?
2: <laughs> uh, no, I would say uh, bottle of water. I think I make it more D than T.
4: Joseph? Bottle of water.
2: <laughs> Not the <laughs> I did it. The title of the thing, bottle?
4: As- yeah, in Arizona, it's a
3: silent bottle. <laughs> Wait, nobody heard me say bottle? I'm so confused. You just confused. have to say...
2: You have to say... No, we did not. I think I just heard water. But in Arizona, oh. you have to say it in a quiet whisper because there's no water
1: around. Right, so because just, someone's going to take it from you.
3: Bottle of water.
1: <laughs> Graham? Bottle of water? No teasing there either, <laughs> is there? Yeah.
4: Um, I mean, I I I could say it in the quite Queen's English and go, a a bottle of water. But that isn't, uh, uh, being truthful, that's not how I would say it. I'd say, can I please have a bottle of water?
1: Yeah. And for me, honestly, it depends on where I am. If I'm in the UK, it's probably bottle of water, mate. Um, (laughs) But in the US, I I don't don't actually speak like that. But I I could specifically remember one of the the first weeks I arrived in the States when we moved there, going to um, a Charlotte Hornets game and asking for water. And she, the, the person, uh, the cashier, just couldn't understand. I'd sort of <laughs> sighed and went, Water, please. A water. And she's like, Oh, water. Bottle of water. <laughs> Is that coffee, beer, coffee, beer. <laughs> ba. Eh? Uh, all right, let's get to <laughs> Dora's main question. What would happen if um, all managers went on strike and the teams coached themselves? Joe, I think the. The key here is you want a really well-drilled team that Mm -hmm. can basically run on autopilot that everyone knows their roles. So is that a Man City maybe? Maybe up until recently it was a Brighton, someone like that.
3: Yeah, I have City at the very top of my list. And maybe this is being influenced by the fact that Pep just said, I think yesterday, that managers are overrated in a press conference, which (laughs) I think there is some truth to. As much as I love tactics, I do think You know, players have, obviously, this is a a very obvious thing to say, the biggest impact on the game because they're the ones actually playing it. So I I think Manchester City would do a really good job even without Pep Guardiola or anyone in charge of their team. And then Bayern Munich as well, I think, would do that too, although maybe a little less so right at this moment because they are undergoing something of of an evolution. But either way, City and Bayern, they're, they're both examples of teams, Ryan, and this goes to your point. You and I are very much on the same page here. Two teams that have... This group of core players that have been around forever. So think about with Bayern Munich, Thomas Muller as a really good example of that. But even Joshua Kimmich, I think, falls into that category. Manuel Neuer certainly falls into that category. There's others as well. And then Manchester City, there have been players that have been doing this for so long under Pep Guardiola at this point. Kevin De Bruyne is the first one that comes to mind for me. But there's others in that squad too. Bernardo Silva fits that that bill. So they both have these these core group of players. That's one part of this. And then they're also just really, really good. They have a defined way of playing. They have more talent than pretty much everybody else. That's the recipe for success, I think, regardless of, of what your manager looks like. It just so happens to that, that those teams tend to hire good managers because good managers want to coach those teams, and, and they've planted themselves at the top of that ladder. So I think those teams would do well. I'm curious to see what you all think about this. I think certain teams that have talent but maybe are dealing with some dysfunction either on the field or off the field, could struggle. So yesterday, I thought of Liverpool in this, and, and that was before they go and beat Ajax and I think play really, really well in that game, although still not perfect. I wonder if for slumping teams, how they would respond without a manager, what that looks like and how they try to galvanize the group without that that leading figure. So that's one question, and PSG are the other one. We mentioned them earlier for World Cup goal scorers, but I, I really wonder how PSG function without some sort of leadership outside of the locker room. I, I don't know how that would go, but I, I can imagine Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, and the other just massive profiles in that group sort of all folding in on each other like a dying star in, in that situation. So I don't know. I think there's there's more to be said on this question. I think I've been talking for a while, but those are some teams I think would do very, very well. And maybe some teams, especially in PSG, that might find a little bit of a dip.
1: Hmm. I'm not sure. I think PSG would fall to pieces straight away with no one telling them what to do I mean Mbappe pretty much
3: is the manager
1: already yeah (laughs) Graham what are your thoughts on this one
4: Uh, yeah City was where I went instinctively I kind of looked at their team and thought which players might actually make good managers so Kevin De Bruyne seems like he would he'd be pretty good as a player manager Bernardo Silva as well Jack Grealish on the other hand hmm Maybe he needs a manager. Maybe he needs some guidance. Um, And also, at this point, Real Madrid basically do manage themselves, and it seems to be going okay for them. I'm not even sure Ancelotti turns up to their matches anymore. He just finds his nearest uh, bar or tavern and orders a nice drink in the rocks and sparks up a cigar and... uh, then someone comes and tells them the, the score at full time. So it seems to be going pretty well for, for, for Real Madrid. But yeah, I, th- I think City, I think Ronaldo would want to manage himself. Um, but that, well, he obviously did manage Portugal in the Euro 2016 final. Um, so maybe a team with Ronaldo as well.
1: Yeah. Good managerial experience already on Ronaldo's shoulders. Of course, Tete, what do you think? Yeah.
2: Uh, this might be revealing as to why I am not a professional footballer amongst many other reasons is that uh, I, I feel like I would embrace the mentality of if the teacher isn't there, like, we can do what we want. We can take the day off. And so I, I do wonder then if teams like Man City, who have spent a lot of their recent history getting very intensely coached by Pep Guardiola if they would slacken off a little bit. So I went the other way with this one. I feel somebody like Real Madrid, where Carlo Ancelotti uh, fairly publicly is just sort of like, yeah, you know, do what you guys need to do. We'll make some adjustments if we need to. I feel like you've got a good mix of veterans, but like hungry youngsters who want to make a name for themselves, I think they could be kind of put on autopilot. I think Ajax similarly, but for different reasons because – Uh, they have a kind of steeped tradition of we're playing this certain way, we're playing this certain style. If you're coming through the academy, you know what to expect. Uh, So I think Ajax would be just fine. The players kind of know... The gist there. And then, I think going the opposite direction, Atletico Madrid, basically you just take a cardboard cutout of Simeone, or the Grim Reaper, if you can't get the image rights to Simeone. You put it on the sideline, you just play sort of recordings of people screaming, and the players will just assume it's Simeone and play their normal game. So I think those three clubs would be just fine. On the national level, I think uh, Norway would basically just be Odegaard the Holland, uh, kicking and screaming style. Just get it to those two, you'll be fine. And then I really want to see Portugal versus Argentina with no managers, So it's Messi and Argentina with Messi sort of theoretically in charge, but I think quietly in charge versus, uh, Graham Marty referenced it, Ronaldo sort of on the sidelines, maybe still playing, but Ronaldo very heavily coaching that Portugal team. I think that would be an interesting matchup as well.
1: I think when it comes to national teams, Taylor, it absolutely wouldn't work without a coach at all because of the nature of national teams, because they only spend a few weeks together each year. I think... They show up. Who makes the call-ups? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, who decides who shows up for a start? Yeah, they and just
4: turn up to the training for for the first Twitter. day of international camp, and they're Twitter. like, "Wait, there's a hundred of us here."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just, just I, I just don't think you'd have the cohesion that you would with a regular a team that plays every week and trains every day with one another. Um, and and also, on, I was thinking of Carlo Ancelotti uh, uh, or Real Madrid as being the answer to this question as well, because Carlo Ancelotti Taylor is someone. Who some would think is a vibes manager of sorts, but I think that kind of belies the influence he really does have. And just even just the players knowing that eyebrow is being raised on the touchline, I think <laughs> would change the way they go about things, right?
2: Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, yeah, and I think he he certainly has done more, and obviously has done plenty in his managerial career that maybe he can. Not coast on his reputation, but I think he lets his reputation speak for him on occasion, and I think it works pretty well. So you're right. He probably does still figure some things out, make some adjustments to make Real Madrid even better than they would be otherwise. But uh, but yeah, I stand by Real Madrid as being a team that I think would be just fine without a manager, at least for a little while. And it's a very weird thing to say about them. It's like very much this version of Real Madrid. I don't know about the ones in a couple a couple years ago if they would be as inclined to not self-destruct.
1: I think where this really falls apart is for the substituting out, in and out. Because if you play Uh, rec league, you know there's always a guy who won't sub out. And you all take it in turns. And there's someone, come on, this guy, come on. You've got to shout him to get him to do it. And imagine that.
4: Antoine Griezmann has cost Atletico Madrid 40 million euros by now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But just imagine that amplified by professionals with large egos as well. Uh, I think that would be a disaster.
3: Yeah, 100%. There's no way that's going to go well. Again, I keep coming back to PSG. We're just going to see Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe hanging out on the field every single minute of every single game, which I think could make their their defensive issues even worse. And again, we're talking implosions here, people.
1: We are indeed. A good thought exercise from Dora Explorer, though, there. Bottle of water. Bottle of water, Dora Explorer. Thank you very much. Let's take a quick break. More coming very shortly.
2: FX is welcome to Wrexham, All new. Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
1: Total Soccer Show. Welcome back to our listener questions. Brian Hansen has got in touch and asked: Is there a reason why referees don't seem to work outside their home nations? EPL refs are largely British, Bundesliga refs are mostly German. Is there something that restricts their movement to different federations? Um Graham, uh, a few weeks or months ago, we did a Soccer 101 episode about referees and the qualifications, Mm -hmm. and I think the answer lies in the qualification process to become a referee and the qualifications are different from federation to federation. So if I have uh, aspired to become a referee and I'm English, for example, and I spend seven years becoming a professional referee in England, it might not translate over to becoming a German referee for example.
4: Yeah, that's what I found as well. We, we should probably mention that it does happen from, from time to di- time. So there was a few years ago when Premier, Premier League referees were being targeted. Mark Klattenberg went to Saudi Arabia when he was considered to be one of the best referees in the Premier League, and I think he went to be head of referees, so he didn't he didn't necessarily go to be a referee, but nonetheless, he, he left his refereeing post in England and, and went to another country. Around that same time, Michael Oliver was reported to be considering going to MLS just this summer, one of Scotland's best referees, Bobby Madden, he decided that he was going to go and referee in uh, in in England, and he's joined the lower leagues in England, and I think his his plan is to work his way up the up the leagues. But yes, Ryan, as far as I could see there isn't anything that technically stops referees from going going abroad and refereeing in another country however it's a bit of a an admin nightmare to referee in another country your 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 fa needs to arrange to transfer your registration as a referee to another FA, and that other FA obviously needs to agree to that as well. And some countries have different levels of refereeing, and so your FA needs to decide on where to place you, or your new FA needs to decide on where to place you in terms of your qualifications in the game. And then on top of all this, you have like normal people stuff, like uh obtaining obtaining a visa, which, if you're moving to Europe, is now much more difficult thanks to Brexit, and yeah. it's obviously more difficult the other way around as well, and it's just a lot of effort, very difficult to get. If you're going to America, very difficult to get a green card. So it's just, it's just a lot of effort for all concerned,
1: and these things act as barriers. They do indeed, Taylor Rockwell. Do these findings concur with yours? They do indeed. Uh, I think Graham has it. Everything.
2: Uh, pretty effectively there. I think language barriers uh, play a part. I think the Federation and their certifications and just kind of sticking in the system uh, in which you begin it tends to make a lot of sense. Uh, and I think in, in, in as much as we don't get players uh, necessarily always like going around the world uh, to play in different leagues, I think referees are happy to stay in their home leagues where they can kind of move up the ranks and get bigger and bigger games that way.
1: Yeah, I think Joe. I kind of equate it to being if you're qualified as a lawyer. If I qualified as a lawyer in the UK, I couldn't go and be one in the US straight away because I wouldn't have it wouldn't quite translate. I couldn't tell them to you know stand up and say objection to things all the time and things like that. (laughs) Wouldn't work. You you
4: have a firm grasp of what it is to be a lawyer.
1: I think you have passed the bar bar right there. uh, I'll I'll allow it, Graham. Go on.
3: (laughs) Yeah, the only thing, Ryan. I think we need a lawyer Champions League. Because that is the, the time international competitions, which I would rope Champions League for all sorts of different confederations and and obviously World Cup and international tournaments fit into this group as well. That is, to my mind, when you'll see most referees from different countries actually refereeing in a separate country. So if the Gold Cup is in the U.S., as an example, you'll see referees from outside the U.S. come and, and, come and referee that tournament inside the U.S., but it's not as if they are refereeing as a part of u.s soccer or u.s soccer sanctioned leagues they are through the international association at that point so that would be Concacaf. you'll get a similar idea in the champions league over in europe where you have referees from lots of different places refereeing in different countries but again that's through the larger association rather than the individual nations
1: indeed all right thank you very much brian for that question let's move on to richard rolson who asks the group have you all watched welcome to wrexham if so what's your review of the show and any chance you could get an interview with the producers of the show um I have many thoughts on welcome to Rexham I've seen it and enjoyed it uh Graham have you seen welcome to Rexham
4: I have I'm up to date with it they're, they're releasing two episodes a week right so there's I think yeah. there's more to come so how many have there been like six so there's, I'm pretty sure I'm up to date yeah there's
1: actually two uh, we're recording on Wednesday and two more have come out so there's eight uh, okay. out there so, right now
4: so I haven't watched those two. I've watched six of them, and I'm and and I'm and I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. What I like about it is the the focus on like the community. I think it's similar mm-hmm. to the Sunderland documentary in that respect. So you get a sense of like people around the club and the priorities of these fans being different to that of fans at Premier League level. And I've watched some of the. The Amazon All or Nothing documentaries, I enjoyed the Arsenal one, I enjoyed the Spurs one, but they were mainly about Arteta and Mourinho, that was what kept me watching. The City one I found really sanitised, and when it's just a team that is winning every single week, as City tend to do, I find that a little bit boring. So I also enjoy that they have that element of strife, which I always think makes uh, a better sports documentary, makes it more more watchable it's it's boring when everything is going well and they're just winning every week people want chaos yeah. um i just i just hope that reynolds and michael Henney, and and look th- those are two guys that i i like and um like their work and everything like that and they seem to be genuine in the documentary i just hope they realize that owning a club is about more than just getting a documentary out of it. And I hope it's not just mm-hmm. all about content. And they do kind of address that in the documentary, but nonetheless doing it for like one or two seasons is very different from doing it for like 10 years. So I do kind of wonder what their, their long-term plan there, but that that's actually a wider point about their real world takeover of Wrexham in terms of the docu-series in its own right it is entertaining and I'm, I'm enjoying it.
1: Yeah, I think it's really well done, and I should have said this at the outset. It's Welcome to Wrexham is the story or the documentary fo- following um, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney's purchase of uh, Wrexham AFC in I'm going to say 2021. Uh, so it's the, the it spans over two seasons at least. We've got six, oh, we've got eight episodes out now. I believe there's going to be 15. Um, Graham, I, I concur with you, and I, what what I think is interesting is. Um, when we fire up our Apple TV at home and you, it scrolls through the apps and it gets to Hulu because it's streaming on Hulu, um, the pr- promotional image on the Apple TV is the Welcome to rex image. It certainly is on our algorithm anyway. So it was my wife that asked to watch it with us. Uh, she wanted to see what she called the ryan reynolds show um and i don't think i'd ever get my wife to watch uh any of the other soccer documentaries out there amazon or otherwise so that was quite interesting that it's got quite a broad appeal and i think what is great about it graham is something you would mentioned there, it's not really about the action on the field it kind of mirrors ted lasso in that way it's about the community it's about the stories around it i think they've done a really good job of, of telling the stories of the city and they've kind of pulled out some characters from the city you've got a single parent dad in there you've got a uh, a local singer who's who's in remission from cancer. There's there's all the players who aren't the ones on big contracts who all live in a tiny, terrible house together, Yeah, uh, which is interesting. And it's not too much of Reynolds or McElhenney on screen in any given episode. And don't get me wrong, they're great value and Ryan Reynolds is hilarious in virtually everything he says and does. Um, but Graham, I think I, I concur with you in I'm not convinced, I haven't been shown they're doing it for the right reasons yet. I'm seeing a lot of Selling of gin and things like that, yeah. and raising of profiles. But on the on the flip side, you talk to people in Wrexham, and they're pretty happy with the investment that's been made. Yeah. Great improvements to the stadium. Lots and lots and lots and lots of commercial deals, gin or otherwise. Much greater visibility for the club as well.
4: Yeah, that seems to be the key thing. Are are Wrexham fans on board with this? And look, maybe I'm maybe I'm being spun here, but it seems like they are. So things like you go into the Wrexham Twitter. At the moment, and their header image on their Twitter account is is a picture of uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob Macalney, which uh, that doesn't sit quite right with me. But mm-hmm. if if fans are okay with that and they feel like the investments coming into the club and they've they've kind of got the best interests of the club at heart, then they're the ones that they're the only they're the ones whose whose uh, opinion matter. So yeah. Yeah, I just, I just want to see how it pans out over, the, over like a full ten year period because I still, ha- I'm still suspicious in that regard.
1: Indeed, uh, Taylor Rockwell, uh, of course, yep. you've done many ad reads for Welcome to Rexham, so you've seen it <laughs> all inside and out, of course. Uh, yeah, especially enjoying when Ryan Reynolds uh, refers to himself as a
2: Canadian, uh, even though their copy has it as two Americans by <laughs> uh, that Uh That was an interesting I one. I did
4: wonder that when you were reading that out.
2: Yeah, yeah. So did
4: uh, many listeners
2: who wrote in. Uh, but that aside, I'm a big fan. And I was really nervous about it because I thought it was going to be a like, look how much fun soccer is, except they call it football and sort of very playing off of Ted Lasso, like, here's what soccer is to to, to most Americans. And I think they do a good job of sort of wading into that, but also keeping it uh, enjoyable for people who've watched soccer their whole lives. And I think that's where buying a club like Wrexham is so smart. And I mean the history of it and the history of the city, but also where their level is. I get the sense with this documentary – That, as they said in, I think, the first episode, they made clear we're filming a documentary when they, like, pitched taking over the club or had to get approval from the supporters trust. Uh, And I think because of where that club is, they aren't really able to say no. And so there were times in the... And I've only watched, I think, four or five episodes so far. But there were times in some of the All or Nothings where the coach would say, like, camera's out. And they would leave the mics on uh, because they couldn't get them off in time. But you could tell that there was stuff not being said, stuff being held back because the camera was there. And there are certainly those moments a little bit. But for the most part, I think you're getting a pretty accurate representation of what happened when they first took over and sort of the uh, Dead Man Walking vibe to a lot of that squad. That was a really interesting thing, how much of the squad wasn't like, hey, we've got all this money now, maybe we're going to make it to the Premier League. It was sort of... Well, that might be the end of us. Like it, it was, <laughs> it was telling that there wasn't this sort of motivation from the jump. Um, so I, I think the like the insight we get and some of the stories that are told, I really, really enjoyed. But I also think because it's two guys who clearly don't know much about soccer football, uh, coming to the game, buying a club, and then still being involved, you still see them involved in some of the transfers, which is maybe a red flag. But I think my favorite scene, and this isn't a spoiler, I don't think, is them, uh, Rob McElhinney and Ryan Reynolds on the phone talking about a draw. And I love any time there's a moment when it's a thing that I sort of am just, like, accustomed to. I'm not trying to make this, like, a humble brag or whatever. It's just that, like, I'll watch something with my wife, and she'll be like, wait, why is it this way? And when you watch a thing, when you're used to a thing for so long, you kind of stop asking some of those basic questions. And hearing Rob McElhinney say, like, football's a weird sport. I think I'm learning that sometimes a draw is like a win and sometimes a draw is like a loss. I was like, that is totally true. And that is a really important lesson to learn. And I love that it ends with him saying, I I think this one was a loss. uh, And it seems like that was correct. So I think there's lots of little moments like that that I think show sort of the reality of the situation. I I agree with maybe the, the vibe of what's been said so far in that I still feel like I'm being sold something a little bit because the documentary is so clearly part of their plans and i think part of their plans is to make money off of sponsorships and jersey sales and marketing and that sort of thing i'm assuming the documentary is part of that i think it's how they plan to uh continue to to flood that club with cash and get them up the up the levels a little bit so i think it's sort of like being aware that you're part of their plan and like buying into that as long as you can get past that little obstacle i think people will enjoy it because i certainly have so far
1: i thought what was interesting um when the f- the scene where they are with the board meeting, on uh, hearing the vote yeah. on whether they can actually take over the club or not. And Ryan Reynolds makes this thing saying, y- you know, you were talking about having a TV crew in there and the large IMAX camera was right yeah. behind your shoulder filming. <laughs> and there's me thinking, all right, well, th- there's also cameras in all these Welsh houses currently yep. filming this as well it's, there's a presumption yep. that this is going to happen because if not they've already invested quite a lot in this process already uh i thought that was very interesting i love how um they're playing into the fact that most people know who ryan reynolds is but a lot of people in yep. north yeah. wales have no idea who rob mcelenny is and uh, they're, they're leaving that in the edit which i think is very enjoyable um and then also from listening
2: to the sunny podcast which is excellent if you're a fan of always sunny that the three creators uh, are breaking down episode by episode, and they have guests come in, and they do different sort of very, like varied episodes. That does seem to be his personality, and you hear that like the, his very first meeting with Ryan Reynolds, he stands up and and gives him the like you are tall, uh, which is a thing he said in an episode. <laughs> and uh, for Sunny fans, uh, the episode. Uh, Where the gang gets me. uh, Time's up for the gang. The the Me Too episode. Uh, The guy who's giving the sexual harassment seminar is the assistant in this documentary series. So I guess he's a writer for Rob Yeah. Uh, But that is who he originally says the you are tall uh, line to in the show. And he says it again to Ryan Reynolds. I think there is that uh, competitiveness to Rob McElhinney that I think makes that relationship all the more fun.
4: but did anyone else find that whole dynamic just another thing that adds into this sense that we're being sold content? I was surprised that they didn't really have a relationship before they bought the football club. Like, I think Rob McElhenny says, like, they were Twitter friends or whatever, but they'd never actually met in person. And so, to, in my mind, I'm like, did they cast Rob McElhenny and Ryan Reynolds in this documentary to get them together? and have that chemistry but didn't really know it wasn't
3: it wasn't organic and now they're yeah. just in this purely well, because of content. Isn't that just how business works though? If you're talking about taking over something, I know Rexham isn't a big club and I know this isn't going to be the largest scale operation of all time. But I, I don't know, I kind of feel like it, it would be difficult, not to say it's impossible to have two sort of lifelong friends doing this together, but to have two famous lifelong friends that actually still like each other that are both rich. That that doesn't happen all the time. I guess I don't – I haven't seen the show yet, to be fair, so I've been sitting back and letting you guys have this discussion. But I, I guess maybe I'm more inclined as an American as well to just accept that I am being sold something and still enjoy it anyway, yeah. and I don't have the the live or die with the community emphasis in, in soccer that I think Graham and Ryan, you guys, can identify yeah. with. Taylor, I don't even think really as Americans we we can have that necessarily being in the United no. States, not at the moment, at least not where where I live and, and maybe where you live. It, it's different. But – either way, I I don't have any problem with the fact that these two teamed up. I kind of feel like that makes the story a little more interesting to see them continue to get to know each other better and and engage on this at at the same time without having that background.
4: Yeah, the thing is, though, Joe, like, I understand what you're saying there. And I am very aware that I'm being sold something and I am enjoying the documentary as a standalone piece of of content. But like when it's Related, and I'm sure you'll, you'll appreciate this, you're not going to disagree with this, but when it's connected and associated with something in the real world, like a football club that's been there for, you know, 100 years, I think it would be different if they'd started a football club, because obviously then if, if uh, you know, it all goes wrong then they can just go, well, you know, nothing was here before. But Wrexham is, is an historic club and part of that community and everything. That's that's just, I have real-world concerns attached yeah. to the documentary.
1: I think I think it's clear there's a third party that has arranged this that's not involved, Graham, because, as you mentioned, two people who didn't know each other have been brought together to uh, 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 own this club, and someone has done the the legwork to find the club and to bring them together.
2: Is that true? Because I, I I don't know that uh, like that may well be true. Surely, I, I my impression was that Rob McElhenney again from the Always Sunny podcast and from what his co-stars have said is always about like what next, what next, what next. Even when they're they've just finished a season, he's on to the next thing. He keeps hustling. He keeps looking for new opportunities and. I get the impression that he was talking, as they say in the documentary, he was talking to, I forget the guy's name, just about it, got into the sport. Humphrey
1: Kerr, the, Taylor.
2: Humphrey thank Kerr. Thank you, Humphrey. Uh, got into the idea of what happens if you could take a team up the, the, the ranks. And I think... Genuinely was probably like, I need somebody with more money than me. I will be more of the day-to-day guy, the guy who's on the phone. Uh, and I need somebody who has a bit more money, a bit more star presence. It was, it, I did tilt my head a little bit when they said, Hollywood A-listers, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney. And I was like, no disrespect to Rob, but I'm not sure he is an A-lister <laughs> fully. Uh, and I do get the impression in the documentary that Ryan Reynolds is sort of like, oh yeah, that thing I bought. How are they doing? Yeah, like he 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 seems less... Emotionally, and he's still emotionally invested, but he seems less of a day-to-day, like, this is a thing that I care a lot about versus this is one of my several investments that I care a lot about. Yeah. And I don't begrudge him that, but it does make for a sort of strange relationship. That, that phone call I mentioned uh, where they're talking about draws, I think that's the one that just ends with, like, silence. And then I think Ryan Reynolds says, like, this feels like a draw of a conversation. And then they just <laughs> hang up awkwardly. Like, that felt realistic as well for two guys yeah. who still don't quite know how to operate around each other.
1: Yeah. where do
4: we rank the intro is it oh, better surely it's better than the sunderland yeah. till i die
1: intro which i i always skipped that intro um i have big things to say about this because the first two episodes graham had a kebmo mm-hmm. cover of the time zero changing by bob dylan and it worked wonderfully oh, it, didn't with the footage it looked yeah. it was absolutely incredibly suitable and it was quite emotive watching it with the uh, imagery of, you know, Rexham, and the industrial workers and the and the stadium and the old footage. And then they changed it to a Buddy Holly song, which had a completely different vibe for the third episode. I assume it, maybe they could only afford Bob Dylan for like a couple eps. I don't know quite what happened there, but I think, I it's, think it's I think
2: it's narrative. Because is the first the first two is like the times they are a change in I forget what the the second song is but isn't that more of like like, we're we're on our way or like we're we're moving up
1: or something it's like it's more i think they need to change the the credits then taylor they need to change the imagery if that's the case because the they've changed the tone of the song without changing the tone of the credits yeah
4: i agree Ryan. i i I agree you've you've won me over with this argument yeah
1: yeah. that might be
2: a dga thing you might not be able to change credits uh, once they are once they are set i could be wrong on that one but uh yeah i i kind of i feel again like uh, this is me Totally just loving Rob McElhenney. I should add. I feel like that is sort of his vibe of like, no, we're going to do it differently. He does that with Mythic Quest a lot, his Apple Plus show, where they will kind of change things and change the approach. Or they'll have whole episodes that don't quite connect to the series. Ted Lasso does that too. Uh, So I, I kind of like... Those moments. And I I am being very, very, very positive. There are some things I didn't love as much. They do a really, really good job of ending every single episode on a cliffhanger. Mm. I cursed at the television at one point because I wanted to go to bed. And I was just like, "Ah, you jerks. Like, I have to watch the beginning of the next episode (laughs) just to see. And it has some moments where I was genuinely gutted we have a question about things that will like stick with you that live rent free in your head as our final question on this one spoiler. and there's a moment from this series that i will think about probably for the next at least like six months or so every now and then you're gonna tell us or is it a spoiler it's the it's kind of a spoiler but it's the it's like the the game when they're trying to get into the playoffs in like the okay. first or second episode okay uh, and one of the players in particular
1: Okay, I, I know exactly what you're uh, getting, yep. referring to there. Yes, we shall say no more. Uh, my observation is I'd really love to live in Rob Becker and his house because it looks amazing. Yeah. And yeah. it's clear that um, Ryan Reynolds, maybe Blake Lyleby said, you ain't filming in my house because his kids and uh, his house are not in it. Whereas Robert, uh, Kate Nelson
2: probably oh, yeah. said,
3: uh, oh, put, put yeah. my kids
1: on on film. F- shoot in our house. It's totally
2: fine. Uh, I think my f- that was weirdly, like there's little things in there that I really, really enjoy And and I think maybe this is a product of of like having a kid. But that that uh the game where they're trying to make into the playoffs when they first take over the club. Yeah. It's happening at what, like four thirty in the morning, West Coast time, or something like that. Yeah. And I really enjoy that it's only Rob and one of his kids up, not his wife Caitlin Olson, not their other son. And that felt very real world to me. That she was sort of like, I'm not waking up for this thing. His son, his younger son, also wasn't waking up for it. I love that he didn't have the whole family up. That would have felt a little bit too like rah rah cheerleader. We already got that when they're awkwardly playing soccer, and none of them have ever played soccer before. Oh, that that was was bad. It was really bad. It was really, the really bad. The
4: grass was but... <laughs> too long, far yes, too long, that yes, grass.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. It <laughs> wasn't regulation. You're quite right. Uh, thank you very much for the question, Richard. Uh, suffice to say, we have watched Rex and we generally oh. did. In- Welcome to Rex and we generally did enjoy it. Joe, I'd recommend you uh, pick it up um, if, yeah. if you have the time and inclination. Can
4: I just jump in here very quickly and say another recommendation is the Lewis Figo documentary on Netflix. I thought that was brilliant. People should watch that. Um, And I will
2: and I will close it out. I haven't seen that documentary, but I will check it out. Graham, I will close it out by saying we did ask for an interview. We were told no because they wanted to downplay the Hollywood angle, which is news to me from watching the series so far.
1: (laughs) But did you did you ask to interview the pub owner, Taylor, who seems to never actually be serving any beers in his pub? He's just sitting down watching games or in a burger van outside. And is always angry, and no matter what. what? <laughs> yeah. He's my favorite He seems character. like a fun interview. Yeah. He's the best. I don't know how he runs a business, but he is the best. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for that one, Richard. One final question, as Taylor uh, uh, alluded to, this one from Jacob Court, who says, Ryan's story about feeling chilled at Wembley recently prompted a question. Are there any soccer moments, positive or negative, that live rent-free in your head? Jacob is referring to a moment I think I mentioned on last week's uh, weekend review where I was at Wembley Stadium watching um, a concert, Taylor Hawkins tribute concert, and I realised I had a cold chill because I was standing approximately where Giorgio Chiellini did terrible, terrible, terrible things in the Euro 2020 You,
4: fent- final. you felt a phantom horse collar.
1: Yeah, I felt my neck feel very tight and... Yeah, very, very unpleasant. (laughs) I fell over backwards and that was just because I'd had lots of £17 beers. That's another story altogether, Graham. Uh, That one definitely lives rent-free in my head. Graham, I'll come to you first. What, what, What have you got on this one?
4: So weirdly, both moments that still live rent-free in my head came in the same match. So it's Scotland v Italy match back in 2007. Bit of context, I'll keep this short. Scotland and a Euros qualifying group with France and Italy, They're, they were the two World Cup finalists the year before. Ukraine were also in that group. They made the quarters of that tournament. So very tough group. Scotland were brilliant. We beat France home and away. We thumped Ukraine at home and we went into the final game, a home match against Italy, who were the world champions. We'd won eight out of 11 games and a ninth one would have put us through. Italy take the lead, then Scotland equalise, and then with about 10 minutes left, McFadden has James McFadden has this glorious chance to make it 2-1. And Ryan, do you know what it was really similar to was Paul Gascoigne, I know you'll remember this, Paul Gascoigne somehow not stretching far enough to get on oh. the end of that ball across the six-yard box for England yes. at Euro 96. Yes. It was remarkably similar in that it's exactly the same. Ball gets rolled across the six-yard box, and you think for all the world that McFadden's going to finish it. He's going to stretch out and, he's going to, and somehow he must lose sight of the ball or something. He doesn't stretch far enough. He misses. And uh, the second moment is... Uh, the in, in stoppage time of that match, Alan Hutton is completely flattened by an Italian player. I mean flattened. I'm going to send you this in the Slack chat because it's probably the worst refereeing decision I've ever seen. Italy get the free kick, they score the winner. Scotland don't go to the Euros. So those are and I was at that game as well, and I was I was a Tartan Army me, a Tartan Army member at that time. So those two moments, 15 years on, I'm still not over it. So those are the two moments moments that uh, pop into my
1: head. Very good, um, Taylor. I think there's. One image, I can't remember which World Cup it was. I think it was the 2014 World Cup. Do you know what I uh, mean when I say the ice cream kid? No. There is, uh, it was Italy versus Brazil. So, gosh, I can't even figure out what World Cup that would have been. Um... It's a, a child who is cut to in the stadium, and he's just rubbing ice cream all over his face. And he's not smiling. He's not laughing. You to, if you Google "ice cream kid World Cup," it is the first thing that comes up. I'm on it right now. Yeah, yeah so am I. Uh, It's just the, look, the the look in his eyes as if he's saying, "Yeah, I'm rubbing ice cream on my face." What of it? Yeah, that's I a like big that. one for me. Big one for me. Uh, some negatives. That you went liber- in a different
4: direction. <laughs>
2: still there. He's still with me. Uh, negatives that live in my head, uh, the 2010 World Cup that disallowed, uh, Marie's just seen ice cream kid. Uh, yeah, I can hear the laughter. uh, uh just-a-loud goal will forever make me angry, even angrier than the Torsten Frings handball uh, versus Germany, just because it was so ridiculous. It was such a horrific call. Uh, so that's in there. Uh, one that is like, well, I, Angel Di Maria's entire time in Manchester United will always stick with me, and I really <laughs> find it hard to ever enjoy anything he does. Even when he scores really good goals, I still just kind of dislike him. Uh, a more neutral one. Uh Paul Skull's inability to tackle, I think about a lot, way more than I should, because I still, to this day, cannot tell if that was an actual deficiency in his game or something that he slowly realized, oh, I can get away with this because no one thinks I can tackle. So he would just basically murder people and get away with it, maybe get a yellow yellow card here and there. Um and then one that lives rent-free in my head in a positive way would be uh it, like the Manchester United signing Robin Van Persie and then putting up that banner because Arsenal had the you can't buy class banner and Manchester United fans hung directly underneath it you can for 24 million uh that that is one of my favorite like troll jobs of all time and and I think about the cleverness of English fans a lot when it comes to that
1: one. Taylor there's an irony in the Paul Skulls tackle um living rim- or lack of tackle living rent free in your head because um there's definitely an image of Paul Skulls' tackle that lives rent free in my head if you might know which I'm what oh, I'm referring to, it's uh, not one to search for at work, guys. Um, <laughs> Joe, what else you got? <laughs> um,
3: well, I'm going to take us in a different direction here. Please do. These, are, you, these are some of the things that I think of most often when we're talking about like memorable soccer moments. Negative side, CUVA 2017, it's kind of mm-hmm. the, the obvious answer. It's the chicken and rice of answers here, but it, it is true. I don't think I'll ever forget that day in particular. 2-1 loss for Trinidad and Tobago not going to the World Cup. That, I think, scarred uh, many people in the American soccer world. But then also, on the flip side, I will also remember the U.S. qualifying for this World Cup, right? Playing away in Costa Rica, not the best of performances. You could sort of see the mixed emotions afterwards of losing the game, but ultimately accomplishing the goal. I'll remember where I was in that moment. I'll remember bits and pieces of that game, I think, for a very long time. So that's, that's one. And th- the last one, I think. Also, all these are sort of linked to me. Maybe this is just me being selfish. I just remember like what I was doing and, and where I was in these different moments. Uh, Robin Van Persie's header against Spain at the 2014 World Cup. I was in Spain at the time, and, and hearing – I wasn't at the game. I've mentioned this before. But hearing sort of like the yells and the shouts – not the happy yells and shouts, but the like agonizing yells and shouts from other folks around in different apartments and, and, and whatnot in Spain. When that header hit the back of the net was a, a really cool moment, not for them, but for me sort of as a neutral observer who was just starting to get into soccer. That was a really memorable thing that does certainly live rent-free in my head.
1: Oh, that's a good one, Joe. And for that World Cup, I was, um, I was in Brazil. I was in Rio and going out on the streets after the 7-1. And walking yeah. around and yeah. seeing people's reactions. That was quite, that one lives with me as well. Uh, Ice Cream Kid, by the way, I've looked it up. 2009 Confederations Cup in, uh, so where would it have been? In South Africa, I suppose, would it? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Um, enjoy that, listener, if you do uh, Google it. <laughs> I think that it concludes our listener questions episode four today. Thank you so much, Taylor Rockwell, for putting up with me. Uh, thank you, my friend, for the same, but about me. Oh, Graham Rutherford, pleasure as always.
4: Thank you, Ryan Bailey, and thank you for reminding me of Ice Cream Kid because I remember this but hadn't uh, seen it in a long time and I'm still having to hold back the
1: the laughter a little bit. You are very welcome. You take that one away with you, Graham. Joe Lowry, thank you very much, sir. Right back at you, Ryan. Listener, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on the feed as always, but for now, bye. bye!